What's happening, everybody? How the hell might y'all be doing out there? Watching that waistline or what? Trying to be productive? Play some double perididdles? Some patty flaflas? Get out, stretch, run, exercise? Keeping it going? Keeping it positive? Keeping it motivated? Maybe not, right? Today's guest is drummer Brian St. Pair, who plays in Hum, and who just released their killer new record, Inlet. So check that out if you haven't already, and I'll include a little clip of the record of the non-YouTube version of this episode. But definitely great catching up with Brian and talking about said record, as well as the 90s. And for repeat listeners, you probably know that, of course, I love the 90s, so good times were had, and definitely awesome talking to him and picking his brain about those times and these present times in which we find ourselves. All good stuff. Shout out to my sponsor, New Orleans Record Press, if you're looking to print vinyl. Go on over to NewOrleansRecordPress.com and check out the mini vinyl coloring, electroplating, packaging, mastering options. They'll even give you assistance with design and you can get a real-time quote from that real-time quote generator there. So they can hook it up and that's NewOrleansRecordPress.com. I'd also like to take the time to remind the listeners to keep their eyes and ears open for movements like bailout funds and save our stages and so many other charities trying to help out those in need. And if you can buy some merch or look out for lessons and classes from those musicians you dig as well, they could very well use it, I imagine, in this time. Crash Bang Boom Podcast can be found on my SoundCloud and YouTube pages, as well as Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, Luminary, and more. Check out my Facebook and Instagram pages for additional content and updates. Please give me a like, a follow, a subscription, whatever it is, if you could. The support is appreciated. All right, everybody, here we go. Brian St. Pair, Hum, Inlet, album out everywhere. Shit rules. Get up on it. Crash, bang, boom. Crowds go mad with joy. Yep, 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 yep. Brian St. Pair of Hum, what is happening, man? How are you doing? Congrats on this new record, Inlet. I think it sounds awesome, and uh, I look forward to talking to you about the writing, recording, and all of that. But uh, how are you doing? How is Hum doing? And uh, yeah, what's what's going on in your world these days? Well, I'm doing all right, and thanks for having me on. This is uh, pretty exciting stuff. I don't get to talk about drumming much, so... Um, <laughs> I appreciate this invite. Yeah, man. Um, things are going relatively well. Uh, playing a lot at home, but not playing out much. Um, I don't know whether or not we're going to play out. You know, following it's a weird time to release a record. You know, we wait we wait twenty two years and then <laughs> release a record at a time where we can't 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 play any shows or do anything about it. Oh which, my uh, god! It, it, I, I, it makes the decision making process easier. You know, because it's just like an automatic no. <laughs> so, right. you know, yeah. Don't feel like don't feel like a jerk for turning on shows for a change. I know. Oh my god, man! Did uh, did Hum have any uh, touring plans that that got postponed indefinitely, or you know, PR with the record, or any anything like that? Is the what happened with that? You know, well, nothing happened because nothing was really planned. We're uh, 
we're kind of these days we're kind of like the, the steely dan of the rock community because <laughs> you know it's just uh like doing doing the stuff in the studio was you know was challenging enough we really hadn't put many um plans in place to do any official touring or play any any shows just kind of mm-hmm. go into it with uh the, the mindset of you know if, if something pops up that sounds that sounds appealing we might do it but none of us you know we're all we're all getting along in the years and um, getting up on a stage in front of a lot of people doesn't have quite the same draw as it once did. You know, it's still, mm-hmm. it's still fun. We, we did the, the Dia de los Deftones thing right back in November. And that was, uh, it was, it was fun and it was worth doing, but I just can't see, you know, driving around for weeks at a time eating Taco Bell and being tired all the time anymore. You know, <laughs> it's, it, I think, I think touring is a, touring is a sport for the young right. and we're not young anymore. So we'll see. We'll see if something comes up that, 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 that sounds fun and we're not worried about getting a bunch of people sick in a couple you know, a few months, maybe. Right. Right on, man. Well, from talking to uh fellow drummer, Jason Gherkin, who obviously played with Hum in 2015, uh, he talked a little bit about Hum's stage volume, and uh, it sounds like it's pretty cranked on stage uh, as a band. But I think the interesting thing about the album Inlet is that um, I think that y'all really benefited from a modern big production, and uh, the final product is awesome. So again, congrats on that. But uh, firstly, I guess... Uh, when Jason was playing in 2015, I guess, had you left the band or were you just on a hiatus then to just rejoin? What was that phase? I, what the, the phase was basically that I, we hadn't done anything in a long time as a band, you know, other, other, other folks in the band decided they wanted to get back out there and play some shows. And I wasn't in a place in my life, most like professionally, like I have, I had and have, you know, a full-time um, job that uh, really isn't conducive to taking, you know, weeks off at a time to right. tour in a rock band. And um, and also at the time, I I didn't feel like, you know, musically, I don't know, valid, potent, Vera. I just, yeah. I didn't feel like I had much to say that I needed to say in front of a bunch of people anymore. Mm-hmm. So the idea of touring didn't excite me at that point in my life. I was, you know, going through some personal stuff with a, with a marriage and all that as well. So... Mm-hmm. I kind of had to focus on keeping things together in the home front as best I could. Yeah. And even suggested to the guys that don't let me hold you back at all. And, and actually suggested, uh, Gherkin as like the first guy they should try and, and awesome that it worked out. It was crazy hearing him, um, play with them is kind of both. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if humiliating, that's not the right word. <laughs> it's just like, uh, he, he he pulled off a lot of stuff that I wish I could have pulled off. It was kind of crazy right. to hear him like read my mind, and if I had more speed and dexterity and uh, agility, you know, that I would have done. But you know, I, I tend to stay home more often than than go off, mm-hmm. and it was just awesome hearing him go off to some of the faster songs and all that. I actually went to the first show, and I didn't even tell him that I was going to go. But it was in Nashville. Nice, and um, it was it was intense. It was it was so great. I'll tell you, the best part was like hearing you know, my band from the audience. Yeah, right. Um, you know, few people get to ever, you know, do that. And yeah. it was uh, it was pretty great. It's awesome. Yeah, and Jason's like such a good dude. And he, he just killed it, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and that new Shiner record is like un- unreal. Ah, oh, it's so dude. good. Yeah, I love it that you both Shiner and Hum put out records. It's a blast from the 90s, man. It's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, you know, the weird thing is it's not intentional. Like, the timing 
like it's not like we waited around for the right time to put out a record, yeah. you know? It's more just like it just kind of naturally happened after a lot of years. Like, why not? It right. just it happened. It's, I mean, we made it happen, of course. It's not like it happened on its own, but it wasn't planned. You know, it wasn't a strategy. It's just yeah. just when it ended up happening. Gotcha. Well, with uh, writing the songs that ultimately became Inlet, I guess, tell me a little bit about uh, the uh, the writing of that. Where, uh, where are the guys uh, presently? And then where are you? I know you're not, uh, you're in Indiana right now, right? I am, yeah. Gotcha. I'm uh, I'm in Evansville, Indiana. I moved here uh, about 20 years ago for a job. Right. And uh, the other the other three guys, uh, Matt, Tim, and Jeff, are still in Champaign, Illinois. So gotcha. it's about a three and a half hour drive mm. through the uh, through the heartland through farm the farm community. Yep. And it's a drive that a drive that I've made uh, literally hundreds of times over wow. the past you know five years. Um, but the record it's been it's been sort of just a really um, casual, gradual process where I'd drive up there and we just met Talbot, the singer, um, guitar player has a, uh, owns a small studio in Tolono, Illinois, which is just uh, 20 minutes outside of Champaign. And, nice. um, I just drive up there a weekend and, and hang out and we just, you know, kick around some riffs and see how things sound. And it was just slow and not very, um, not very, I don't know, stressed, not very intense. It was more, it was just casual. Mm-hmm. And then we, once we came up with a few things that kind of sounded halfway decent, we'd start recording what we thought would be sort of demos or, or um, just works in progress. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, a lot of the drum tracks were actually pulled from, from the earlier stuff, like from like us just like, tr- like trying out a song mm-hmm. and, that that's mostly it's not because I'm like Mr. Awesome like early one take guy. It's kind of the opposite. It's <laughs> yeah. once we once we once we got like further down the songwriting process and and I started putting more pressure on myself to be uh, you know perfect. Mm-hmm. For me, that's the kiss of death. So it turns out that the stuff that ended up feeling better mm-hmm. and sounding better to us was the stuff that I recorded earlier on when the songs are still kind of new and fresh and before I had a chance to overthink them. Right, right. I'm absolutely with you. Yeah, I think that's how Neil Young always insisted on recording. Is like he just like like introduce a song to a band and he'd start the tape rolling, and as they were still learning the song, that's where he thought the energy was best, and mm-hmm. that's kind of how it worked out with us this time. That's awesome for the drums. Now for every, everything else, they had that luxury, you know, taking their time and and all that. But for me, most of the earliest stuff was the stuff that we ended up keeping. About how long ago would you say you recorded most of what became the drum tracks on the record? God, like 2017. Wow. <laughs> like three or four years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, we don't do anything fast. And, and we did this all ourselves, so there was never any pressure from, you know, producers or labels or anybody to uh, have any deadlines. We just, you know, we've all got day jobs and families, so so it took it took a long time. And it's not like, it didn't take a long time because we were, you know, tweaking it to death every, every day of every week. It was more just like we would just work in like burst and then not do anything for like a couple months. When it came time to mix the record, who mixed it? Because, uh, I mean, obviously the, the tracking was there and it sounds like some of the spontaneity of those first takes and, and what you did is there. Uh, but who mixed it? Because man, I'm telling you, it really sounds great. Thank you. And I agree. And it was Tim Lash, the guitar player, um, he's like a wizard these days. Um, 
most of a lot a lot of the songwriting came from him and all of the mixing um and uh anything to do with the sonics of it i mean he he basically he basically mixed the record in his living room wow and kind of learned as he went you know going into it he uh i mean he'd done some stuff but he hadn't done anything you know like this and he just basically taught himself um how to uh how to mix a record and wow he he put a lot of pressure on himself to to do it right. He was uh, hope he doesn't mind me saying this if he hears this. He was worried that all along that it wasn't you know going to be up to the standards that it should have been, and he was kind of you know I don't well I can't I, I'm not going to speak for him, but I'm going to say that he's very pleased, and we all are that it has gotten the reception that it has. Definitely, we didn't know what we were doing. We we've never made a record before on our own, so right. Um, it, we were we were feeling pretty like I don't know revealed. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's just very gratifying that it's gotten the reception that it has. It's a, uh, it's a relief. Awesome, man. And did... yeah, the Sonics, the Sonics are, the Sonics are just massive. I don't know. Totally. I don't know how he did what he did, but he really, he really, it's like the, 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 the lows are just endless and the highs. Mm-hmm. Are it's just, it's a beautiful sounding record. I'm really, I'm really proud of him. He did yeah. an amazing job. Absolutely. What, uh, what kit did you use on that record? Did you just have a kit set up permanently set up and mic'd basically out at the studio where you're writing and recording some of that stuff? No, um, it wasn't permanently set up because Matt, you know, the, the, the singer, the owner of the studio, he had bands that would come in in between when we'd be there. So I basically, you know, drive up there, set up for the weekend and then tear down. Gotcha. Um, uh, and the kit itself is, a is a Jenkins Martin spun fiberglass kit. Nice. They're, weapons of war they're amazing they're mm-hmm. just they the, the 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 tone and the cut and the power the dynamics it's like they they there's no there's no ceiling on how how loud they are which getting back to you know what you said about what gherkin said mm-hmm. about about playing you know with with the home guys i mean yeah this real loud band you know i yeah. mean um you know really really loud band and if you don't have drums that can can um, you know compete with a high watt, hundred watt head, and and you know if you don't if you don't have really loud drums, you're going to get lost. Right. It's kind of like survival of the fittest, you know. Um, but it was a, it was a natural and easy fit for me because I've always been too loud. Like in, even before home, I've been like rim shotting everything, you know, toms included, and yeah. And um, I don't know I don't know why, but it's just always felt good to me to to uh, to hit really hard not out of like a listen to me kind of arrogance, but it's more just like, that's how it feels like a, a rock beat should be played. Like I can't do it halfway. Right. I've never understood. Like you look at like guys that have their, their toms really, really angled. So mm-hmm. you, you just like glancing blows instead of like heavy, heavy hits. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you can compete in the rock community. If you're not like <laughs> basically rim shot and everything. Right. Know? Right. That's funny, man. Uh, and out of curiosity, on this record, with uh, with the records that y'all put out in the '90s, uh, I'm ass- I'm assuming, or tell me if not, that uh, that y'all did y'all use click tracks then, and if not, did y'all use them for inlet? No, we never have, and it's nice. not necessarily a conscious decision. It's not. It's not. We're not trying to make a statement. It's just uh, really, it comes down to I don't think I I, I don't play well to a click. Right. We we tried it once when we were recording one of the songs on uh on um uh Downward is Heavenward, the song Green to Me. It's just a really sort of standard, um, ordinary pop song with not no time changes. So we just 
we figured we'd try a click and see how it went. And it was just, it was silly. It was laughable. Like we tried for like, I don't know, three minutes and then just stopped because the were just laughing too hard. It just felt, <laughs> it felt really, really wrong. <laughs> I, you know, for good or bad, like I, for whatever reason, the way that I play is like really behind mm-hmm. the beat, like almost, almost ridiculously too far behind the beat. Yeah. And it's kind of painful to listen to sometimes when I just like solo up like the drums and the guitars. I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is ridiculous. But <laughs> when somehow when it's all, when it's all working together and primarily thanks, I think to Jeff, the bass player, he's kind of like this weird glue that makes it all work. But for whatever reason, the way that I feel time doesn't really uh, work well with, uh, with a click. And I actually, it an embarrassing admission. I, I tried to sit in um, with spotlights a couple of years ago because Chris, uh, their their drummer, couldn't make some shows. And I'm yep. a huge fan. And, yeah. you know, reached out to Mario. And I'm like, hey, man, I would love to, you know, sit in with you if I could. And Mario and, and Sarah, they were so nice. They're like, of course, you know, let's 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 try it out. And I just couldn't. I can't play, you know, because I've got some, um, they've got clicks, you know, they, they play to, a, you know, a Helix on stage because totally. they've got some, some other things going on. And I, I just don't have, I don't know. I don't know if it's old school or, or low IQ or what it is, but uh, for whatever reason, I can't function to a constant click, which is, which is nice because I can do the Chamberlain thing where you kind of push and you pull. And, you know, I mean, a lot of music breathes organically like that. Right. But, um, you know, I'll live by the sword, die by the sword, because sometimes, sometimes I speed up when I shouldn't. Sometimes I usually slow down, you know, when I shouldn't. So, yeah. But yeah, that's a long answer to your question. We've never used a click. We tried, and it just doesn't. I just can't do it. it yeah, doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Right on. That's funny you mentioned spotlights because when I first heard the new Inlet record, I was like, "Oh wow! I wonder if Mario Cantero uh, produced this." It really re- had a sonic nature that reminded me of the Spotlights records as well. So shout out to Sarah, Mario, and Chris of Spotlights. I'm a, I'm a fan of that band as well and friends. Oh yeah, there's there there's some that's like just such a tremendous band and such nice people. I mean, the first time I heard title, it just blew me away. I couldn't couldn't even believe it. That song, Joseph, like walls, like all of it, all of it. Yeah, um, just so massive, just so massive. Totally. And yeah, it's a great. It's, I, to be compared to that is is pretty flattering because uh, they're they're doing it right. Well, uh, going back to the early 90s, I mean, I believe you were in the band in 90. I know you put out your first record in 91. It's uh, crazy to think 30 years later you, you're putting out a record, man. Uh, yeah, tell me about it. I know. <laughs> uh, but I guess, uh, you know, having spoken to some some of the 90s drummers that I loved, you know, guys like Adam Wade of Jawbox and Shudder to Think and John Stanier and Rock Savage of Bark Mark and Vinny of Unsane, uh, I love to talk to bands from that time about both the local scene that they came from and some of the bands that both influenced uh, your band in this instance and maybe even some of the bands that y'all toured with that you really enjoyed. So I guess uh, taking it back to when you first uh, joined the band, what was going on locally or or was it more of a Chicago scene or was there a scene where y'all were based out of? What was, what was that all about? You know, we formed in Champaign, which is a college town. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like before, before hum for me, I was more of a, you know, a typical, uh, just major label meathead. Still, it's still the case, you know, Bonham and, and Copeland and, mm-hmm. uh, and of course Neil Peart, mm-hmm. um, Alex Van Halen. I don't think Alex Van Halen gets his gets his it's righteous props in the rock drumming community. And uh-huh. that guy, uh, you know, he he really did it right. So I I came from more more of like the mainstream, um, you know, rock background. I mostly Neil Peart. I mean, I used Peart shampoo, and it wasn't even like spelled the same. But I was just a, <laughs> you know, for a couple of years, all I did, did was listen to to Rush. But then anyway, in college. I was just drumming one day with the window open and, um, um, Matt, you know, and, um, and another guy who's no longer in the band, um, heard me through the window and ended up coming over and they needed a drummer. And anyway, you know, start, start, uh, start to hum, get into hum. And then this whole new world opened up that I had no, no awareness of, you know, mm-hmm. I learned about like slit, slit and Jesus lizard and bitch magnet. And yeah, it's like, oh my God, you know, these drummers, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I honestly, I wasn't like a cool indie rock dude and still am not, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, um, being, being with those guys and getting exposed, you know, even to, to dinosaur and stuff was, it's just so great to have the, the background of the typical, you know, um, metal rock stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, and then have this new door open up. And, you know, first time, first time hearing, you know, Mac, uh, you know, on Liar, mm-hmm. you know, like playing Gladiator. And first oh, time yeah. hearing, you know, Brit and Spiderland. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I didn't shut my mind to the major label stuff or the indie stuff. I kind of like an equal, equal opportunity guy when it comes to inspirations. So, you know, Arrested from Bitch Magnus is important to me as, you know, Stuart Copeland. And mm-hmm. I think I've kind of benefited from that because... There, are, I mean, a lot of great drummers out there, and if you, and if you shut off to everybody that sells a ton of records, you're going to miss a lot of great drummers. Tommy sure. Lee, I think Tommy Lee, one of the best rock drummers of you know, the, like ever. Yeah, um, he's awesome. But <laughs> oh my god! But uh, if you're punk rock only, you're going to dismiss him because you know he sleeps with supermodels and stuff. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> gross. But well, I guess I guess it's not that gross. You not that I mean? gross. I mean. I, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I was just—I wish—I was just thinking about this not, not that long ago. I wish that I had saved all my uh, modern drummers from like all the years. I was just such a such a, a geek, yeah. you know. I would just like read these things like cover to cover, like all the ads and all the interviews and all the everything. I mean, drums—they were just everything to me for so many years, and I—I kind of miss that, you know. You get older, and you know, kids and jobs, and and there's a certain amount of I think. Um, I don't know, just just uh, emotional shifting that you do. Where, yeah, uh, I mean, honestly, you lose. I, I think for me, you lose a little bit of like the passion that drives you to be so connected to your instrument, and it's on one on one level sad, but it, it's also just inevitable. You know, you can only yeah. say that only in your teenage years and my twenties can you afford to just be fully committed to one one thing, and then other stuff creeps in. But yeah. I'm glad that the, the home thing happened when, when it did. Cause uh, it was like a perfect fit. I got to drum like a, a heavy metal meathead with a bunch of really talented guys who, who, who didn't come from that background. And I think, I think the combination um, 
you know, worked. Yeah. And, and for whatever reason. Right. Now the other guys, the other guys in the band might disagree, but <laughs> for me, it's been great. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, what were some of the bands that y'all were uh, in some of those early tours and whatnot that y'all did? Uh, were there any bands that y'all were really digging that y'all played with, or that you remember feeling as though maybe were kindred spirits back in the day? Uh, yeah, lots. The one that the one that comes to top of mind was um, the Poster Childrens. They mm. were also a champagne band. Nice. Um, they kind of did things on their own. I believe they signed a sire. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, they're champagne stalwarts, and um, they, they've they had a few drummers through the years, but we went out with them early on when they were touring behind a record called Tool of the Man, and their drummer um, at the time was known as Johnny Machine. Since then, he's done it. You know, John Herndon, he's the, the tortoise guy, mm-hmm. um, one of the two drummers in tortoise. But yeah. back long ago... He was uh, he was playing with the poster children, and God, every night I was just like fanboy, you know, right up, right up side stage, you know, just watching every move. Wow! And it was probably annoying as hell for him. He's like, this guy's like creeping me out. But <laughs> such a great band, and he was such an amazing at that time, kind of you know, a heavier rock drummer. You know, he's got yeah. he's, he's shown a lot more finesse, finesse and depth and stuff in Tortoise, but and he did the Poster Kids too, but. Man, a huge influence, you know, early on and as as a band and also as a drummer. And then also, um, one of the other drummers that the Poster Children had is Bob Rising, who went on to play with uh, Seam hmm. and some other bands. And he was he was just a monster. He was so damn good. The Champagne music scene was pretty exceptional. There's another wow. band, Love Cup, that we played a lot of shows with. Nice. That we tried to get signed once we were on RCA. We tried to you know get them signed, but it didn't work out. But you know, I, it's it's a it's a silly thing to say, but it's it was kind of like this a Seattle thing for us. Like there were so yeah. many great bands in Champagne when when Hum was doing you know our thing that we just felt like we felt like one one of many. Yeah, it almost it felt in some ways a little bit weird that we got some attention and other bands didn't because we're kind of like looking around like, well, what about them? What about them? What, you know, right. it just seemed like a lot of bands should have come from that. But, um, and then another band that we played with earlier on that was, that made a huge impact was a band called heroic doses mm. with Ryan Rapses on drums. Mm. And that, that is just a magician on the drums, Just so damn good. Um, and nice. Nick, Nick McCree, who played bass, he ended up playing a little bit with the fire fest, you know, the, the sunny day, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that rose yeah. up out of the, yeah, I love that sunny record. day and all yeah. that. So, Oh my, yeah, so good. Goldsmith is such a great drummer. So awesome. Jesus. The space that he leaves him. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we played with, and then, you know, a couple shows with the Pumpkins, you know, after, right after Dish came out. And that was just, that was ridiculous. Awesome. Watching Chamberlain and the, you know, it was, it's, Oh yeah. Funny. We, we, we opened for, we opened for them on the, right, right when Dish came out, they, they came down to play a show in Champagne because Chicago's only, you know, three hours north of, of where we were at. Yeah. And, um, we got the opening spot. Chamberlain, I don't think he wanted to strike his drums after sound check. He would have rather left him up. It was a small, like a small stage. Yeah. And uh, they just asked if I wanted to use his kit, you know, um, to just save grief and time. I'm like, well, maybe. Let me check it out. I went and sat back there, and there's just no way. There's just no way. I, I sit super low. I'm like, I'm pretty much on the ground. It's kind of silly. I look like Jabba the Hutt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just how I feel best. It's just like, it feels just feel feels heavier to me to sit low. Yeah. And he sits really high. So like I went to sit behind his kit and um, it, I, I just felt like I was standing up. It was, I felt like I was in like a stray cast or something. It was oh, really, that's hilarious. Really odd. 
really odd because seeing him, seeing him from like five, you know, 10 feet away, side stage, right after Gish came out, lethal. I mean, just oh. razor sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Chops on that dude is just monstrous. That's awesome, man. Well, yeah, absolutely incredible drummer for sure, man. Um, in those early days, uh, do you look back and uh, are reminded of any uh, particularly strange show that y'all played? And that could be for a myriad of reasons, you know, whether it be strange uh, uh, crowds or just, you know, locations or, or the venue or equipment meltdowns. Are there any shows in those early years that, uh, that, that you reflect upon as being especially kind of ridiculous? <laughs> you know, um, nothing stands out like like as a single show, but I can say that a lot of the shows we played earlier on were, uh, to put it kindly, sparsely attended. Like we, right. we played shows for, you know, four people and and the bar staff, and I'm not exaggerating. You know, yeah. we, we we did our we booked our own tours and drove around in a crappy van, and and you're playing a Tuesday night in Pensacola, Florida, for you know, whatever ten people, and. I got to say, and this is not like fake humility or meant to sound adorable. It's true. I think those are some of, some of my, and some of our best shows because you're, it's weird. You're like more connected when there are so few people there. It's like, you, you can't, you can't, it, it's not diluted. It's right. very direct. You know, you're playing a show. It's like, you're playing a private show for a couple of people. And it's like being under this weird intimate microscope. I miss playing small shows and again that's not like me me trying to sound artificially humble it's just true like i think small shows like basement shows yeah you know house parties right those are some of my most memorable shows yeah and the opposite is you know like we we opened up for bush on you know for about a month you're playing for whatever you know thousands of people and it almost feels like it feels like it, there's no difference between a shitty show and a, and a good show. Like it's just gets so diluted through a big PA right. and a big hall. And you're so far away. And there's this big barrier between the big, like, you know, um, security barrier between you and the front first row. Mm -hmm. So what, what's memorable to me about the earlier stuff is that it was small and intimate. And I think, I think it's, we were like a, in some ways a better band because of it. Wow. It's a great, it's a great way to kind of get your act together. But as far as like equipment, nightmares like i don't i never really had any because i'm kind of i'm kind of organized and uptight and and i always you know double check everything and i have extra wing nuts impressive i never really had any major breakdowns except i you know broke a kick kick head once or twice and that's kind of a nightmare and you got to finish the finish stuff out playing the floor time instead of the kick and, right you know then try and get a borrow one from the opening band or the you know the main band but i to this day i still have nightmares about something like that happening on stage. Like, you know, it's a typical nightmare to like, you forget your locker combination or yeah. your teeth are falling out or yeah. you're naked in public or, you know, there's some cliche nightmares that people have. But for me, it's like my kick drum falling off the front of the riser. Um, <laughs> or I can't, can't reach my symbols for some reason. Like right. just like these drum anxiety nightmares where something about your, your kit doesn't work out. Wow. But in, in real life, it like hardly ever happened. That's amazing. <laughs> Maybe because I'm, you know, because I had nightmares about it. But I, I learned earlier on that I have, to, I have to, I have to chain my my kick drum. This is something I picked up from Johnny from from Herndon, from uh, you know, the tortoise uh, poster, mm -hmm. poster children drummer. He would chain his kick drum to his uh, his throne. Yep. He would literally have a chain that he would hook to the spurs and then to the base of the throne. And I didn't use a chain. I just used like a you know a rope. Yeah. But um. 
because I sit really low and I sit really far back. Mm-hmm. So most of the, a lot of the impact is actually going forward, not down. So I've had a few like end of song nightmares when I'm playing somebody else's kit where the kick drum is, you know, a, a foot away, a foot farther away from you than it should be. Oh yeah. You know, so I, uh, I just use a rope. Now I've even tried recently to get rid of the rope and use those, uh, brakes, those kick brakes. Yeah. And those don't even work wow. like for, for me, for some reason, I gotta, I gotta rope it down. <laughs> Remember that Damon Che, that that, that uh, Don Caballero drummer? Oh, yeah. He he would actually like, he'd actually nail. He'd bring a piece of like plywood and some nails and a hammer. He like nail, nail a um, a piece of wood to every riser. Mm-hmm. I think he, I think he probably got some shit from some sound guys and stuff doing it. But yeah, oh, we've man. all got our own. <laughs> do do what it takes. Exactly. Well, post Electra 2000, uh, you signed RCA, as you mentioned earlier. You put out, uh, you'd prefer an astronaut in 95. And of course, you have a pretty big hit in stars. Uh, and now that you've had some time to reflect on it, I guess tell me a little bit about stepping into the machine, so to speak, of a major label and what that experience was like. It wasn't, it wasn't as bad as, um, you know, a lot of bands made it out to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably because we, we signed to RCA. RCA was was a pretty, believe it or not, it felt like a pretty small label. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of pressure. There wasn't a lot of oversight. The A and R guy that signed us, his name is Bruce Floor, and he was just a fan. He was just a regular guy with an expense account who really, really liked the band mm-hmm. and had some major pull with the label. He he also um, signed Dave Matthews to RCA, so he had like a he had a lot of credibility and a lot of leeway, mm-hmm. and they let him do what he wanted, and it felt really comfy i mean it felt good and that's thanks in large part to to again bruce um the guy who signed us because he basically insulated the label from you know doing the the the, whatever the tom petty like i don't hear a single kind of you know pressure like we really didn't we really didn't get much of that they let us they let us do what we wanted to do like i mean for example you prefer an astronaut we we tried recording it one place with one person and it didn't work out and and they just let us do it again. You know, wow. they, they didn't, they didn't pressure us really. The pressure that we felt was always from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it really didn't feel any, any, any worse or any weirder being, you know, as you put it in the machine, it really it didn't feel like much of a machine. I mean, mm. filming videos was pretty weird. That was, right. that was odd. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a strange thing to do. I ain't gonna lie. That was not, that wasn't ideal, but um, yeah, Having the, the financial backing at the time to, you know, to not have to worry about how you're going to pay to record a record or how you're going to pay to tour. Um, that was really nice. It kind of frees you up to just, to just chill and, you know, write the music and play the songs, which is of course what, you know, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. It wasn't the nightmare that it, a lot of people make, you know, sign into a major out to be for, for, and I think, I think it's because RCA just wasn't that kind of label back then. Right. They were pretty relaxed. 
Right, right. Well, in 98, you know, you then you put out your second on RCA and downward is heavenward. Uh, did you notice, uh, was that a different experience in recording it? You mentioned uh, with the previous record that you recorded something and then, you know, ended up going elsewhere with it was uh, was putting out downward. Was that uh, an easier experience? Was it different? It wasn't different. It was just harder. It was the same. We're, we're kind of an uptight band. Like we, we don't just go into a studio and, you know, drink beers and, and, and record rock and then leave. Like we're kind of all tweakers in our own way and we're a little bit meticulous and me especially tend to overthink things. So, you know, recording a record is great when it's over, but I can't say it's like a blast when it's happening. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves you know, to, to not suck. <laughs> and, yeah. And that, that in itself can actually be counterproductive, you know, cause rock is not, it's not supposed to be, um, you know, tweaked to death and, and, and worried about how you're supposed to just like let it rip. Yeah. But we've never been like a let it rip. Well, I'll speak for myself. I've never been a let it rip guy when, when the record light comes on. Mm-hmm. Um, so recording is hard, you know, it's hard to get something on tape that you are comfortable living with for the rest of your life. Yeah. And Donald was even harder than, than Astronaut, I think, for that reason, because we just had, like, the freedom to do it the way we wanted to do it. So there was nothing in our way other than just ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, writing the songs and then recording them in a way that was, was good enough for all of us, it was just a lot of work. Yeah. You know, same with Inlet. Same, same, it's always been that way. But Downward was the hardest. Hmm. I can try and explain why, but I don't even, I'm not even sure why. I, I know why. Yeah. But there's a, you know there's a reason that we broke up after we after we recorded it. It was just it became hard to be to to be good in a way that was like relaxing and fun. It just became it seemed like it became more of like an obligation and less of a passion. Yeah. Um, and that's more probably more for personal than you know musical reasons. Like I, we've always music's never been the problem. It's always been just like you know, standards and, and expectations and you know, all the, all that stuff, which right. again, is from us. It's not, it's not trying to meet, meet somebody else's expectations. Can you record something and then like, listen to it and be like, yeah, that rocks. Like, that's awesome. Like I've, I've never been able to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm more of the, I try to uh, prepare at least in more the last decade plus of doing studio recordings and whatnot. I try to prepare to the extent that I kind of obsess uh, uh, over a, a couple weeks lead, two, three weeks leading into it. So it's pretty much muscle memory. And uh, generally my first takes are the ones that have the energy and that are best. And if there's something that I'm really struggling over uh, more often than not, it's what I assumed I would be fine with. And all the stuff that I assumed would be challenging when I went and I had rehearsed it so much that I was good to go. And some of the stuff that I might've overlooked can become problematic. I've noticed that, but more often than not, yeah, I would say that I tend to be more of a first, second take guy. And after that, it's only getting worse. <laughs> yeah. And you know, back to, back to, back to Alex Van Halen. Um, that's, that's the way that they would, that's the way that they would do it. They would, they would take two, they would do two takes for a day. And if they didn't get it, then they come back to it the next day. But, right. it, and there are other, there are other styles of music that probably aren't like that. But I think for like, you know, rock that has like a visceral, it needs a visceral impact and energy. Um, that's the kind of thing that you can't fake. You can't force yourself into having that, you know, um, sixth sense kind of, you know, uh, energy right. you, can't, you can't you can't force yourself into making that kind of thing happen right um because god knows i've tried <laughs> <laughs> totally man 
Well, you know, you mentioned like, you know, obviously downward is heavenward. Uh, we were talking about just, you know, being in the late 90s, uh, even though I guess that was like y'all released that early in 98. But the late 90s, early 2000s was especially getting strange, in my opinion, for the record, quote unquote, industry. I mean, I think if you look at what was being played in the form of rock on the radio, to me, it sounded more or less kind of like these redundant templates that were just being regurgitated by these record companies of what they thought could hit all over again with kind of this 90s certain 90s aspects to it and then also worth noting that at napster started to happen in the late 90s and early 2000s so then then you're talking about a pretty tectonic shift within the record quote-unquote industry again so i'm just wondering did was there a feeling amongst yourself or the band that the industry and and a lot of this was changing at all and did that have an effect on it or as you said was it really just life shit and everything else yeah it was definitely the latter we didn't really break up the reason we stopped recording and touring i guess yeah. that's breaking up <laughs> is, um is, is it's all it was all internal it wasn't that we couldn't fit in with the times or that yeah. the record that the record buying public was changing their preferences it was none of that mm-hmm. it was just that we it was it became harder and harder for us to make music that we were um inspired by and proud of mm-hmm it just it just felt less special and more and more like work. And I guess you know it's to be expected when what was what was your passion turns into your job and you're doing it because you're supposed to, not because you want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, only the best bands can can kind of sustain or 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 survive that kind of um, like motivation shift, right? You know, and there there are lots that can. You know, I'm I'm like continually impressed with bands that can just be awesome and stay awesome yeah we had like a, a limited span that we could like all feel that way um so it kind of just it kind of like fizzled out naturally you know it didn't right. feel sad it didn't feel tragic it just felt like it's time to like get married and you know do other stuff and get right. jobs and it was, it was fine <laughs> but now yeah. here we are you know 20 years later and it this also feels fine to do a little bit of this again it's like a, it's like a luxury to be able to revisit those feelings you know after so many other things have happened Mm -hmm. it's uh it's not the same but it's it's good you know it's nice to it's nice to put out a record in 2020 i just wish there wasn't a you know global pandemic and uh civil rights for the new century it's crazy times We mentioned Spotlights earlier, and then I, I like to point to a band like the Deftones, for instance, where they've you know mentioned Hum as being an influence. And I think if you look at uh, White Pony from from 2000 that they put out, that was definitely a, a, a turning point from them and something where I can hear some of the 90s influences between both Hum and you know maybe My Bloody Valentine, Failure, etc. Has it been interesting mm-hmm. for you to see how how your band has has been an influence to some of these other bands? I mean, just recently, yes, but never really realized it until just, I mean, it is like there was a, a review that came out in Brooklyn Vegan a couple of days ago about shoegaze that, that, that like 
referenced us as this major influence on, like you said, you know, other bands up to and including Deftones and all that. And it just feels, it's of course, flattering and humbling and wonderful and all that stuff. Like I feel more influenced by those bands than they by us. You know, <laughs> yeah. it feels weird. Yeah. You know, I, like it, it really, really. And again, that's, that's again, none of this is fake humility. It's just true. Like I, I can't, I can't believe we've influenced anybody and I can't believe I've influenced anybody, but, but it's true. You know, we have, yeah. but I, I have a hard time owning it. Like I, I know what it took to make the music that we've made mm-hmm. and it's effort. It's struggle. It's insecurity. You know, it's a lot of stuff. that's not like, Hey, we're going to motivate other people to want to do this. Like, this right. is so good. Other people are going to hear it and want to make music too. It just never has felt that way. Sure. So, and it still doesn't feel that way, even though I know it's true, but I don't know how to own it. You know, yeah. I don't I don't know how to sink into that and accept it. It's wonderful. It's it's amazing. I mean, because my inspirations have, have meant like everything to me. You know, I'm 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 the sum total of like all my inspirations plus a little bit of, you know, what I can't do and have to like fake. Right. And that's its own unique cocktail. So it's weird to me that other people have drawn inspiration from me and from us. But I know, I know it's true. It's just, it just seems surreal. Totally. I, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, you know? I bet, I bet. Well, uh, you had mentioned, uh, obviously, you know, moving to where you now live some twenty years ago, and then the uh, the band dissolves, or you take a pause, hiatus, whatever you want to call it. Uh, did you play the drums much? Did you did you take quite a, an extensive break from playing? Uh, and, and if so, I guess, uh, depending on how long that was, was it then not hard getting back into it more recently? Uh, took a break. Yeah. Basically from 2000 to 2010, 2000, even into the teens. Wow. You know, I focused more on being a, a dad, a dad and a husband and, uh, you know, uh, I, I work in, in medical devices mm-hmm. and that's a pretty all consuming career you know travel a lot and it's it's uh it's it's a lot so it's i never didn't have a drum set i never sold all my stuff and said i'm done right on but there were there were periods of uh, there were periods of my life where for i wouldn't touch the drums for you know months wow and and that's not the case anymore because you know my kids are older my job's a little more relaxed so i can kind of get back into it a little bit and you know, to to an extent, it's like riding a bike. You know, I, you still got the good feels and all that stuff, but it's amazing the things that you hear in your head are a little harder to uh, to squeeze out through your hands and feet. You know, when you haven't, <laughs> yeah, when you haven't, because back then I was like playing to like Rush records and stuff like that. That that'll keep your chops up, but I haven't you know done that in a while. But what's nice is what you what I found for myself. What 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 you lose in whatever speed and and dexterity you you can you also gain feel and yep. and power and taste and and maybe that's a way to justify that it's you know it's, maybe i'm making excuses and saying it's okay to not be as good anymore because i still got taste but <laughs> it's kind of true i mean it's kind of because i listen to a lot of the earlier stuff like i'm a lecturer and i'm like jesus like how do you plan so much like you have, like it's not all about you yeah. it feels it feels kind of like show off uh-huh and um but now now i listen and, it, and i'm like oh my god you sound like sound like nick mason you know from pink floyd you're just like just coasting on fields <laughs> yeah. and i don't think I, I don't think i'll ever be happy with my playing i guess is what it comes down to mm-hmm. but it is nice to get back into it and especially with these guys man i mean the guys the guys in home they're just such a good band and there's making music with them just feels it feels like home 
Yeah. You know, it's it's really, it's really, and that's because we've kind of pretty much grown up together, you know, musically and otherwise. So, um, whatever, whatever, whatever it lacks, you know, whatever I feel is missing is more than made up for, and what is what is there, you know, the pros outweigh the cons. Yeah. But yeah, I took a lot of years off. It's really great to get back into it. Feels like amazing. Home. Well, man, 30 years later after its inception and uh, you got a great record to boot and it's amazing that y'all did it in-house and it came out as good as it did. So again, congrats on that and uh, wish y'all the best going forward and hopefully I can catch up uh, with you in person at some point when and if hum comes through New York, when and if uh, all of this shit storm lets up, uh, it'd be nice to catch up. Yeah, yeah, likewise, Jody. Yeah, I really really appreciate this this chance to talk with you and and it's kind of inspire it makes me want to play the drums a little more now <laughs> nice. so i think that might be what i do when we hang up i'm standing here looking at them now so i really appreciate this it's, it's been fun awesome man appreciate it have a good one man you too jody take care all right everybody thanks for hanging thanks to brian for hanging as well great talking to him love the new hum record glad to see they're back and putting some stuff out as i said in the interview hum and shine are putting out new records in 2020 bizarre times in which we live here folks take it easy we'll catch you on the next one crash bang boom